Hi there, nerdlings. This is Ash. And this is Matt. And you're listening to Crime Time Nerds, a sister podcast, which is now a member of the Spilled Potion Independent Arts Collective. You can check out all the awesome things the collective is up to, as well as the other fantastically nerdy podcasts that we've partnered up with over at SpilledPotion.com. And now, nerdlings, let's grab our flashlights and join us as we venture down into the dark world of true crime together. What's in a face? These are the words out of literature that remind us of just how human we are. What's in a face? What's in a name? Are we just a name and a face? What happens when we don't know a face or we don't know a name? Can we relate to a person without a name or a face? Are we able to connect with them? To associate them with a memory? I think of the folks in my life and how I conjure up a memory of them. When I hear the name Ash, I immediately think of a long, dark-haired woman, part hippie earth woman, part Amazonian warrior woman. I think of someone always on the verge of laughing, with eyes that shine bright and intelligent. When I hear the name Jason, I think of my husband, a quiet, gentle giant with reddish-brown hair and eyes that twinkle with mischief, just like his sister's. My mind immediately conjures up their features. I see them next to each other, and I see the similarities. That same upturned nose, the same small dimples in the corners of their mouths, they even talk the same, quiet and methodical. When we think of names, we think of the people we know who share that name. We give them an identity, a personality. We create a memory of that person. We connect with them as fellow humans. So what happens when you don't have a name? When you don't have a face to connect with a person, when you can't give them an identity, do they lose significance in our minds? Can we relate them to a living, breathing fellow human? Are they less relevant to us when we read their stories, knowing nothing about them except how they were found? These are the questions that come to our minds when we come across cases of John and Jane Doe's. They call to us in a strange way. Maybe it's the allure of a mystery just waiting to be solved. We find ourselves diving deep into these cases, trying to figure out just who this unknown person was. More importantly, we find ourselves lost in their stories because we want to know their face. We want to know their identity. We want to know their name. So many questions invade our minds when we read Jane and John Doe cases. Just who was this person when they were alive being the biggest question. It's usually the first one flashing in a weird neon fluorescent type sign in our minds. Did they look like their siblings or did they have dimples? Did their eyes crinkle up when they laughed? Were they happy or did they struggle in their lives? What happened to them that led them being abandoned by the wayside with no name and oftentimes no face to accompany their stories? We've found ourselves intrigued by their stories in a way that is different from the other cases we cover. Perhaps it's because we know that out there somewhere, someone is looking for them. Someone loves or loved them. They matter to someone, and we feel the need to try and help them find their identity again. We want their names to be known, and we want them to be remembered because they matter. We don't want them to sit on a list for decades as just a case number or a county name followed by the term Jane or John Doe. Our memories are tricky things. At one point in time, a certain Jane or John Doe had a name. They had a smile, they had a laugh, or a passion for something. They were very much alive and thriving. They weren't just a case number on a database. 
They were a brother, a sister, a friend, a lover, a partner, or a child. They were just like us, trying to navigate the strange, crazy world we all share. I always thought that Jane and John Doe's weren't found here in Vermont. I recently learned that this mindset is false. People can lose themselves anywhere and anytime. It could be any of us that lose our own sense of identity due to a situation that is outside of our own control. It could be any of us who end up on a list as a case number with no picture and some minuscule details as to what we were wearing and where we were found. Even in Vermont, we have folks listed on a database out there in the ethers of the internet, just waiting for someone to fit the puzzle pieces together and give them their name and their face back, to connect them with their loved ones who have been looking for them for a very long time with no answers as to what happened to them. Tonight, we are going to dive into a story of one of the oldest unsolved cases in Vermont. It is also the oldest Jane and John Doe case in the history of the state that is known at this time. I came across this case in a late-night foray into historical Jane and John Doe cases that remain unsolved, and their story called to me from the pages of an online database. I had never known their story until recently, and now I think about it every single day. And with that, nerdlings, it's time to grab your flashlights and your notepads as we leave the light and venture down into the dark woods of Middlebury, Vermont, back in May of 1935. Middlebury is a small Vermont town that looks like it came right out of the 1800s and was placed in the middle of modern times. Buildings are often older than 100 years. You'll find local family-run restaurants and stores that have been around for generations. And it's known to be one of the most beautiful towns in Vermont. It's not a town that makes one think of darkness, secrets, or murder. You feel safe walking the small town streets at night. It's a place where you'd leave your car and your house unlocked, and you wouldn't think twice about it. Yet despite its beauty and sense of security, Middlebury is home to one of the most tragic, unsolved homicides to ever hit our Green Mountain State. In May of 1935, darkness would show itself in the small town of Middlebury, Vermont. That sense of security would drip away with a gruesome discovery off a local road, and it would haunt the town as well as many investigators over the next 86 years. It has also come to haunt these two podcasters as well. On May 15th of 1935, Mrs. Fred Daig of Middlebury was out picking flowers with her daughter Inez Perry. While walking, Mrs. Fred Daig accidentally made contact with what looked at first to be a rock, but after looking, Mrs. Daig realized it was a human skull. Mrs. Daig did not panic, but instead took her daughter and went back home. Once she was there, she contacted the local sheriff of Middlebury, who was Ralph Sweet, and reported the findings of the human skull. Sheriff Sweet noted the location of the skull and enlisted the Middlebury town doctor, Dr. L.S. Walker, as well as the state's attorney, John Conley. The three men met at the location, and so the 86-year-old mystery would begin. Upon going to the location, Sweet, Walker, and Conley found the human skull. They did a quick search of the area and located just a few feet away from where Mrs. Fred Dake had first made contact with the skull. The three investigators found the remains of not just one skeleton, but that of three human skeletons laid out in a four-foot square next to each other. One of the skeletons was laid out in the opposite direction of the other two in order for them to have laid in that perfect contained section. The investigators realized that they had a homicide on their hands of three individuals sometime in Middlebury's recent history. Upon examination, Dr. Walker was able to determine that three skeletal remains had been executed with a shot to the backs of their heads. They had then been wrapped in what looked to be the remnants of a military blanket 
or a thick horse blanket. The material was too degraded to make a definitive judgment. They looked to have been encased in a large green canvas bag, like a navy duffel bag that sailors once carried with them across the world. Further examination of the site showed that the skeletons had been there for some time, as their remains were fully decomposed and debris such as leaves and dirt had built up on top of them. A small yellow birch root had grown up around the foot of one of the skeletal remains. Sweet brought in more officers to search the area. Upon searching, investigators located among the debris several islets that looked to have once had rope tied through them, as well as four small block pulleys. Investigators also found pearl buttons that looked to possibly have been from pajamas, the tattered remains of what looked to be a silk garment, a button, and some feathers possibly from a pillow. There was no identification on any of the skeletons or any found nearby. The three skeletons had no name and no one had seemed to be looking for them during that time. Investigators quickly got to work trying to determine just who these three lost humans were. State's attorney John Conley brought the skeletal remains to Burlington's University of Vermont. Once there, the scientists began investigating the remains, looking for anything to possibly lead to an identification of just who these three people had been in life. On investigating one of the human skulls, researchers were able to retrieve the bullet from the interior of the skull. It was identified as a bullet from a 38 Colt revolver, confirming that someone had cruelly executed the family with a shot to the back of each of their heads. The suspect then placed their remains on that forgotten stretch of road and left them alone, nameless and known only to the woods around them. They could have been there anywhere from three years to as many as ten years. When the case was initially reported in the early parts of May, investigators had determined that the skeletal remains belonged to that of a large adult male, an adult woman, and a small child. Later that year, roughly between October and November of 1935, it would be determined by Harvard scientists that the remains were that of a woman in her mid to late 40s or early 50s, a teenage male roughly around the age of 16, and a child roughly around the age of 10 of indeterminate sex, thought to have been a female at that time and has since been listed as undetermined. It was thought that the woman was related to at least one of the skeletal remains. More than likely, she had been the mother of both. Investigators were going off these theories in the early parts of the investigation. We have had a deeper understanding of anthropology now than we did back in 1935. DNA sciences and human morphology have come a long way in 86 years. One can't help but wonder if the assumption of one of the skeletal remains genders could have negatively impacted the initial investigation into the case, as investigators were looking for an adult male and not a 16-year-old boy. UVM and Harvard scientists began to investigate the skeletal remains dental work in hopes of leading to a positive identification of the three souls that had lost their lives in Middlebury late one evening. The dental work of the family became the focus of the investigation as they showed that the teenage male skeleton had had a form of early braces that was known to be quite expensive. Back then, many families couldn't afford braces or extensive dental work. The findings were telling as it led investigators to believe that this family may have been more affluent. It was estimated that at that time, the braces alone would have cost anywhere from $1,500 to $2,000. This is in 1935, so it would have been astronomical then, and honestly still is to this day. The woman's skeletal remains also showed extensive dental work done, 
giving investigators a lead that they could try and follow up on. At that time, dentists did mostly custom work. The type of braces that the young teen had would have only come from an orthodontist. And back then, there were roughly only 300 orthos in the entire United States who would have been able to do that type of bracing. Realizing that local police would need backup in finding the identities of this unknown family left in the woods of Middlebury, in June of 1935, the case would be sent to the Justice Department. Veteran detective Almo Franzoni was brought in to investigate the case of the Addison County Jane Doe and her two unknown children. Detective Franzoni's name may seem familiar to some folks, as he would later be the lead detective on the still-unsolved case of the disappearance of Paula Weldon from Bennington, Vermont. Franzoni and his team sent pictures of the dental work and skeletal teeth to orthodontists across the nation, in hopes that someone would recognize their handiwork, or remember an affluent family who had had the procedures done. It was determined that this shouldn't have been hard to find, as in New England alone, only 10 to 12 of that type of dental work would have been done each year. Alas, they only received a few tips. Only one seemed to be of any note. An orthodontist from Elizabeth, New Jersey, stated that the dental work seemed similar to the work he had done on the family of a prominent New Jersey broker. The dentist thought that the broker had a wife and two children. We couldn't find any documentation that showed if that tip had been followed up on or exhausted. Excitement over the dental records soon turned to frustration. The years began to pass, and leads would come up, and Detective Franzoni would chase them down. He kept looking into every possible person, every possible avenue. In 1938, he followed up on a theory that one of the skeletal remains was thought to have belonged to a child named Beulah Golden. Beulah was a young girl who had two brothers and a mother. Franzoni had only ever been able to track the family to Connecticut in 1929, but nothing since then. In 1938, Franzoni ruled Beulah out as a possible victim as he found her alive and well in an undisclosed Vermont town. She was now a high school student, but hadn't seen her mother or brothers, Charles and Francis, since 1928. At that time, Detective Almo Franzoni believed the three skeletal remains belonged to that of Mrs. Charles Golden and her two sons, Charles and Francis Golden. It was possible that Jane Doe and her children were that of Beulah Golden's mother and brothers. Like all the leads previous to it, the Goldens would also prove to lead to nowhere as a few years later it was determined that Mrs. Charles Golden had changed her name and she and her two sons were very much alive and well, having moved to another area with her two children and had left Beulah with an adoptive family. The case seemed to stagnate out over the years. Periodically, leads would come in, and then they would dissipate. Years would pass, then decades, then half a century, and here we are today closing in on nearly a century since these three lost souls were found off a wooded road in East Middlebury all those years ago. The three skeletal remains became listed as one of the oldest unsolved cases in Vermont. The female remains have come to be known as the Addison County Jane Doe and her two children. Many people have forgotten this three-person family. They've been lost to time. Nameless strangers on a database on the web now. For much of the time, the family has been unknown. They had no facial image to associate with them. In recent years, students partook in a 3D exercise where they brought to life the faces of both the Addison County Jane Doe and her youngest child. 
one of the skeletal remains has not been constructed at this time. We will share images of the reconstruction on our social media for folks to see. If it seems like some of our information in this case is incomplete, it is. Ash and I have adopted this case and are still currently exploring it. We're investigating it ourselves, if you will. It's become a case that we are both emotionally involved in. I saw Addison County Jane Doe's face on the Doe Network while I was researching some other cases. I'd actually never heard of her story or that of her two boys until recently. We've both lived here most of our lives, and to learn that 86 years ago, a woman and her two children were found and have yet to be identified is a mystery that the two of us just couldn't resist. I saw her face and I thought of my own mother, and I saw the faces of her two children and couldn't help but think of my own brothers. It may have been 86 years, but they still matter. Someone loved them, someone knew them, and someone cruelly murdered them and callously tossed them among the debris of a wooded road that left them lost to time. This case is so rough. Yeah, I mean, especially seeing as the young boy had those expensive braces and the mother Mm -hmm. had the extensive dental work. Back then, I feel like if someone who had a good amount of money went missing, it wouldn't just get brushed under, under the rug. You know, I feel like that would be... Oh, yeah. I've been in the records nonstop uh, since I found this case. I've been deep diving into it, and I can see so many other people that were affluent or what have you in other states, big cities, things like that, who went missing. It was pretty heavily reported on, but for some reason, no one meets, no one in the nearby area meets her kind of uh, backstory. Mm -hmm. You don't see anyone or any mothers and their children really missing in the timeframes that would be relevant to her case, which, you know, I'm still investigating in and still kind of retracing of the steps, figuring out what information's actually missing and what is actually available. I just haven't found it yet. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's what's been kind of interesting about this case is that, you know, just diving into all the old articles and kind of retracing Franzoni's steps has been really fascinating for me. I've really enjoyed learning about how they did it back then and the piece-by-piece investigation that they put together. I mean, this was a cold case before they ever found her. So yeah, mad respect to all of those investigators. Although they didn't solve it, they tried so hard. Yeah, definitely. You can just tell that Franzoni was just invested in this case. Yeah, he was. He was always known to be invested in his cases because he was with Paula Walden too. Yeah, yep. Currently... I think where I'm at with this one is that I'm still looking into missing reports just of any woman and two children in other areas of New England. I've pretty much ruled out most of Vermont from that era, but I'm going back. I mean, realistically, she could have been anyone from like 1905 even to 1935. So I've been kind of looking in that time range just to be sure, but I've pretty much ruled out Vermont. So now I'm kind of moving on to some other neighboring states to see. I suspect she's probably from Boston or New York. Or Montreal. I would guess she was like one of the summer folk, and she and her boys were probably here for the summer, at, staying at one of the hotels. Yeah, and you have to wonder too, because when they were found, they had that birch root around yeah. one of the feet. So, I mean, you, you kind of have to think how long does it take for tree roots to grow? One of the articles I read said it could take up to 10 years, so they could have been there anywhere from a couple years to 10 years. Yeah, yeah. Probably not more than that, but probably not much less if that makes sense Mm -hmm. so and Nat didn't your friend mention something about like an old timey Middlebury Inn 
Oh, it still exists. It's the actual Middlebury Inn that stands today. Ah. So it was operating back then. It's just an old, old inn. It's had different ownership since then, but it's still in existence. So she had mentioned that more than likely, if this was like a summer visitor, they may have actually been staying at somewhere like the inn, just because those were kind of like the wealthier to do places that a lot of people would come from like the bigger cities to visit Mm -hmm. and stay in quaint, you know, quaint, beautiful Vermont, maybe stay through the leaf peeping season, things like that. So one of the things that I would love to do is maybe try to track down like an old guest log book or anything like that around those years, because that might lead to some idea of who was staying at the inn at that time. So it was an idea I'd had after she had mentioned that, that I was like, oh, that's really cool. I hadn't thought of that. Yep. You know, the other thing you can do is you can start looking through ancestry records to see like when certain people stopped having any information done on them, which that's how a lot of folks begin to look for like missing relatives and such. So you could always do that too. You know, you specifically focus it around the years of 1930 to 1935. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the things I would definitely like to do. Yeah, because I mean, someone's got to be missing these three Mm -hmm. people. Like, it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, and and I think one thing, too, would be really interesting is maybe to go down to Middlebury just to visit her and her son's graves and to see about maybe going to the Historical Society just to see what other information exists on the case. Yeah, and I bet if we went to the Historical Society and talked to the staff, they'd have some pretty good ideas as well or just theories. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, they're probably pretty familiar with the case and be able to point us in, in a good direction, too. So that's kind of the upcoming goals of what we have. You know, one thing I thought about, I don't know how many, this is a long time ago, so I don't know what records for this case are going to still exist, but I would love to reach out to like the Vermont State Police to see if any of the autopsy records or maybe the original police file um, existed. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, super slim chances that this would even be in existence still. It's so old, but you never know, and it might be worth asking a question or two. And so I would be curious to know where any of the evidence was sent to, you know, particularly that bullet, because the bullet would have still lasted. So yeah, that might be an identifying marker. Any of the blankets or the silk garment, those hit or miss if those would still be in existence. It depends how they were uh, kept, but could be worth looking into that. And I would love to find the dental images. I think that could be really, really interesting. Yeah, definitely. I totally agree with that. If we could somehow track those down and take a peek. For sure. This is one of those cases that we knew that when we covered the episode on this, it wasn't going to be just a one and done, that it was going to be an ongoing thing because we were both so invested that we just are probably going to be investigating this case here and there uh, on the side for a while. You know, it's it doesn't hurt to take a look and see what, you know, what information we can find on her. So that's the goals. All right, nerdlings, it's time for us to close this chapter of Crime Time Nerds. But I promise you all, this isn't us closing the chapter on this case for good. We both have plans to keep digging, like we said, and just keep seeing what we find along the way. We will keep looking for Addison County Jane Doe's name, and who knows, if we find some interesting leads, we can always do a follow-up episode. Also, if you're from this area, or if you're inspired to help dig into our case with me a little more... Reach out to us via email. You can hit us up at crimetimenerds at gmail.com. Any ideas, thoughts, or theories are welcome, as it takes a village to solve an older case like hers. Uh, so we just wanted to say thank you for listening this week, nerdlings. This is a super special case to us, so we appreciate you letting us share Addison County Jane Doe's story. And if you liked this episode, or any of our others... 
feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you want to connect with us, you can find us on our Twitter or Instagram at Crime Time Nerds. Or you can join our private Facebook group, which is Crime Time Nerds. We also have a Patreon now, so we'd love to have you join us over there and be a part of helping the show grow more. And last but definitely not least, we now have some sweet CTN merch so you can find our merch store over at TeePublic. The link will be in our episode description. Until next time, you crime-loving nerds.